Hi, welcome back to One Day You'll Thank Me. My name is Dr. Terry Egan, and I'm your host today. This is just a quick announcement to let you know that today's episode is an encore episode, which means that we are replaying one of our favorite episodes from a prior season. So tune in. Thank you. Welcome to season four of One Day You'll Thank Me, a podcast for smart parents. I'm Dr. Tara Egan. And I'm Anna. I'm a mom, a therapist, a parent coach, and an author. And I'm a daughter and a kick-ass high school student. Each week, we'll discuss a different parenting topic. And we'll interview some amazing guest experts. Our goal is to provide an interesting informational resource for busy parents. While also offering the perspective of a teen. Stay tuned, everyone. Boom. Hello, welcome back to One Day You'll Thank Me. My name is Dr. Tara Egan, and I'm your host today. As you know, my dear daughter, Anna, is usually with me, and I'm really bummed she's not here today because this episode is kind of a throwback to the very first topic we talked about on our very first episode. So today we're talking about gaslighting, and we're doing it with an expert who has written a fantastic book that I'm going to tell you all about. But I am bummed that Anna's not with us because she has learned so much from that initial episode we did way back in July, 2020. And she brings up this term gaslighting all the time because she's absolutely able to recognize when people in her world are doing it. And I know she actually told me recently in her AP psychology class, she had a, a classmate ask her something about it and she was able to answer it. So I'm bummed she can't be with us. But we do have a fantastic guest. So let me tell you about her. Her name is Dr. Deborah Vinal, and she is a doctor of psychology. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's certified in EMDR and brain spotting, and she specializes in helping individuals heal from traumatic life experiences and painful relationship dynamics. So she has spoken as a subject matter expert on human trafficking, domestic violence. She's spoken at college and nonprofits all across Southern California. That's where she lives in Southern California. She was awarded the Sandra Wilson Memorial Grant from the EMDR Research Foundation for her research on the impact and treatment response of survivors of mass shootings across the USA. So obviously that's a very relevant topic. And for all of you out there who are parents, you know that fear that so many of us feel when we send our kids off to school every day. She has written a book and it's called Gaslighting, a step-by-step recovery guide to heal from emotional abuse and build healthy relationships. So I had the privilege of reading the book over the weekend and I just did a ton of underlining and I was telling Dr. Vanal, like I have actually pulled it out already this week in my office when talking to clients about boundaries. So I think it's going to be a helpful resource for parents. I think therapists could look it over because I think it's really fantastic in that it's a relatable, approachable way to talk about this topic. So put it in your in your cart on Amazon, Gaslighting, a Step-by-Step Recovery Guide. And I'll take this time to say hello to Dr. Vanal. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm so glad you're here. I did also want to just briefly mention, and I know it's not the the topic of our of our discussion today completely, is that you also have a, another book coming out. Yeah. In March of 2022. 
And that book is called The Trauma Recovery Workbook for Teens. And it's a resource guide that can be used with kids ages 12 and up. Am I correct in that? That's right. Okay. So I do want to mention that to those of you who are listening out there, there's actually two resources that you can take advantage of on Amazon. Although the one is just on the verge of being released for public consumption. So I'll be checking that out too. It can be pre-ordered. Oh, good. Yeah. I like that. As an author myself, it's, I find it thrilling when people pre-order because I'm like, oh, you saw something else I wrote and you feel like this could be helpful. Like it's like a little vote of confidence. So sometimes you get a day earlier than everybody else when I've pre-ordered books, which is kind of a fun thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we get started on your, our topic today, I do want to take a minute for you to tell us about yourself and tell us what led you to this line of work. I love hearing from all our guests, like what was their journey to doing the work they do? Well, since my own adolescence, I've always been drawn to working with underprivileged youth, just drawing from my own experiences as an adolescent. And um, I quickly found myself out of my depth and in need of um, a higher level of education and understanding of uh, of how to help the kids I was working with. So I went and I got a certificate in crisis counseling and that kind of lit a fire in me to think, oh, psychology can actually be helpful. So I went on and got a bachelor's in human development and a master's in marriage and family therapy and eventually a doctorate in psychology. So that's kind of my educational background. And I've worked in, uh, in with foster youth in group home settings and in in-home intensive work as well. And now I have a private practice that specializes in trauma in uh, Southern California. Wonderful. I relate to what you're saying about you get, for me, I started working with kids and or kids who had a, a significant disability and they required respite care if their children or, you know, if their children went out of town, I was one of the individuals who worked in the respite care facility. And it just really, if I hadn't had that job, and just come across it because somebody suggested it and it was better paid than you know working at the local grocery store. I wouldn't have gone into school psychology. I wouldn't, I mean, it just it just was this one little drip that then led to this whole big, you know, funnel towards my life's work. So I really relate to what you're saying. Now, is the majority of your time spent providing therapy services with individual clients? Well, I do primarily work with individuals at this point. And yeah, that's a big part of my life. Obviously, I spend some time reading and writing as well and practicing yoga, going running. Um, one of my biggest joys is being a mom. Um, I have one young teenage boy and a wife and auntie and sister and friend um, brings a lot of meaning to my life as well. So I try to have a good balance. Wonderful. Well, as we start to talk about gaslighting, I want to make sure that we're clearly defining the term gaslighting and that I would love to have you tell us a little bit about how do we know, how do we recognize if someone is gaslighting us? Sure. Yeah. Gaslighting is an insidious form of emotional abuse, wherein someone tries to maintain their position of dominance through a pattern of small attacks on your emotional wellness, specifically working to make you feel crazy and to doubt your own senses and your own intuition. So some of the things to watch out for is somebody who's frequently challenging your experience, um, challenging what you say about things and your feelings, distorting or lying about what happened. They might also be calling you names or calling you crazy or that you're too emotional or you're hysterical, um, you're too dramatic. The, there's a lot of common patterns of behavior that also accompany gaslighting to support it, to keep that framework in place that aren't themselves gaslighting, but are part of a whole constellation of behaviors 
like um, belittling you, criticizing you, putting you down, comparing you to others and behaviors such as that. Well, I think of how that applies to all relationships, you know, not just significant others or romantic partners, but I see this type of dynamic between, you know, parent and child, co-parents, that is, you know, parents who've gone through a separation or divorce. And I'm, you know, a huge portion of the work I do is working with co-parents. And so having gaslighting behavior take place between two parents who are, you know, trying to work together or trying, they both have a common goal of raising their kids to be healthy and well-adjusted, but a lot of, you're not remembering it right. I never said that you're overreacting. You always say such stupid things. This isn't your area of expertise. You've never been an involved parent. Who are you to say something about my behavior or my actions? A lot of changing, trying to change the like memories like that never happened. I never, and it could be something really big, like I never hit you, or it could be something smaller, you know, where I never, I never called you fat, or I never said that to our kid. And so it's, it's, you're, you're right. And that it's like the little cuts here and there. And there's a lot of times when I'm interacting with parents that they've been a victim of that for a really long time and they have a hard time combating it, which is why I think this is going to be a book that's going to be really in a prime spot on my shelf to, to use to, to help parents get through this. It really undermines your ability to evaluate the health of the relationship you're in, whether that is, like you said, a domestic partnership or co-parenting or even your relationship with your own parents. Yeah. Do you think that a lot of people who use gaslighting as a primary mode of relating to others, you know, in this emotionally abusive dynamic, do you think it's something that's been role modeled for them and that's how they get into that pattern? Well, just take a step further back. What really under what really holds together gaslighting is this idea of power and dominance. And so it really is stuck to relationships where there is a belief in hierarchy, whether it's a patriarchal model or a um, just a sense that one person should dominate the other. So when you've got that fundamental authoritarian worldview, that's probably been modeled. Okay. Mm. So you may have grown up, um, they may have grown up in an environment where dad dominated mom and dominated the kids. And then that person goes into a, a relationship with say a girlfriend or a boyfriend where they dominate their partner because that's what's been modeled. So gaslighting is part of that constellation of behaviors and it's a way to reinforce the push for dominance. Okay. So one of the things you mentioned in your book, and it wasn't a huge, huge section was talking about the relationship between people who gaslight and whether or not they fit the criteria as um, having narcissistic personality disorder. So is it always the case? If you notice that somebody in your life is gaslighting you or gaslighting you frequently, do you think that means that they have narcissistic personality disorder or is it not that simple? I would say it's not that simple. Yeah. Certainly there is going to be a lot of overlap between people with those kinds of pathological personality disorders, but Gaslighting exists on a continuum. And so in my book, I talk about four different kinds of gaslighters from the the sadistic one who really just takes delight in the cruel game of it, of making you question yourself and making you feel crazy to the narcissistic gaslighter, who's somebody who's really all about feeding their ego. And so it doesn't really matter to them what consequences it has for you. And then I talk about the defensive insecure gaslighter who their aim isn't to tear you down, but 
they will gaslight in order to protect themselves. And so this, and this is something I think that most of us, many of us can relate to from time to time and hopefully doesn't become an ingrained pattern, but perhaps there's a time where you have, you know, lashed out at your kids and without feeling the courage to be vulnerable and brave and say, you know what, I shouldn't have done that. We might try to cover it up with some gaslighting, like that didn't really happen or, you know, your behavior was the problem today. Not my behavior as a parent was the problem today. It's a, it's a very easy trap to fall into, I think at that level, but it still has consequences. And then the fourth category that I talk about is not really a gaslighter, but I call that the accidental gaslighter. And the reason I call that out. So that would be somebody who perhaps has memory issues for a variety of reasons, whether that's dementia or a mental illness impairing memory. And so there's a denial of what has happened. And the reason I mention that is that it can still have that effect of kind of crazy making on you when you're constantly in a relationship with somebody who's denying what has happened. I see gaslighting a lot with parents who are struggling to take responsibility for something within their behavior. It might be they tell a parent, I told you what time to pick up the kids. And like, maybe they didn't, or they know they didn't. But rather than saying, oh my goodness, I forgot to tell you. They're like, well, you're just a terrible mother and why can't you keep track of when our kid has soccer? You know, and then now the the other parent is in sort of defense mode and they're combing through all their emails and listening to their voicemails to see, well, did he tell me? Did Mm -hmm. I just forget? You know, in, in, in those moments can be extraordinarily stressful. Or they say something like that with the kids. Like, I told you that you needed to do this and you didn't do it. And the kid's like, I have no memory of that. And maybe it's, they have ADHD and weren't attending to the directions, you know, maybe they don't want to admit that mom and dad asked them to do it and they just blew it off. Like, but it ends up being a dynamic that becomes very familiar within that family. And so some of the work that I do with is like, okay, let's not resort to that. Let's use direct language. Let's talk about, you know, what you recall in your perception and acknowledge that another person can have a different perception that it can be equally valid. We have to go back and challenge our perceptions about, about parenthood, right? So if we have a belief that we must always be in control and we have to be infallible in front of our children or in front of our co-parent, then we're going to fall into that trap more easily. Yeah. If we can't say, you know what, you're right. I did forget to tell you to, to bring that paper to school. That's on me. I'm sorry. Then we're more likely to go instead to the direction of, no, I did it. You're wrong. Mm-hmm. And not only are you wrong, but you're incompetent, you're lacking, you know, and it can go pretty far with that. And when you have, you know, you're in a separation or divorce, maybe your your concentration or attention to detail is a little bit skewed anyway, or disrupted anyway. And then you have somebody who's saying those types of things, like it can really do a number on you. In your book, you discuss the cycle of gaslighting. So there was several terms in there that, you know, I am familiar with being a therapist, but I'd love to hear you talk about some of the highlights of that portion of the book about the cycle of gaslighting. Sure. I talk about a a four-stage cycle, which can apply to, to most often to romantic partnerships or not so romantic sometimes, but also can, can take place between parents and children. And those four stages are love bombing, devaluation, discarding, and hoovering. 
So to break that down, love bombing is the real feel good part. That's when you're showered with adoration and gifts and praise. And there's almost like this consumptive need to have more of you. And that can be like a drug. It can be addictive. It can feel so good and so passionate. And then from that point, when that gets boring to the gaslighter, it starts to shift into devaluation phase where the person starts to pull away, starts to pull away their attention. They may begin to criticize you, put you down, verbally attack, complain, and and shift their attention towards somebody, possibly towards somebody else. They may be actually starting the love bombing cycle with another person while they're in this devaluation cycle with you. And if that's working out for them with that other love bombing cycle, then it's time to move on to this discarding part. And that's where they kind of drop you. And it's this callous indifference that's so contradictory to the wonderful, passionate love bombing experience you were having before. And so that seems like it's over. But for a lot of these gaslighters, it's not. They circle back around again. And now that's not good news. It's not like, yay, we're going to get back together. It's just part of this cat and mouse game. And so that's when they start to pull you back in and the, there's sort of a return to the love bombing. And there's often the gifts and the praise and the compliments and I love you and you're so wonderful, but often it's also mixed in with some of the criticism and the complaints. So you kind of get this mixed message of, I love you, even though you're fat. So you kind of get the sense of, well, he's the only one who would accept me. So they're cutting you back while trying to adore you. So you didn't go to somebody else. Yeah. I think of the phrase like, I'm the only one who would put up with you. Yes. That's classic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or if you were a good, insert word, parent, spouse, daughter, you would do this for me. So I see that sometimes with co-parents where they'll say something manipulative to to their, you know, to their other co-parent about the children. What kind of mother are you Mm. that you wouldn't encourage a relationship between me and the children, even though I have an open DSS case. And so then the, let's say it's the mother is now racked with, am I not being responsive to my kids? Am I hurting them by not having their father there or whatever it is? And that dynamic, like you mentioned, you know, romantic partners, but everything you said, you said, I could think of when, for example, let's say there's two siblings and one sibling is maybe a little stronger willed, a little less people pleasing. So they'll love bomb the good sibling, the one who complies and the other sibling will not be love bombed. And so then that good sibling, it's like, I totally side with, you know, this parent because they just were, they experienced that love bombing. And then they'll start to disparage that child, undermine them. And it kind of creates this situation where the kid doesn't know which end is up. Like they're always looking to see is it my parent going to love me today? Are they going to be proud of me today? Are they going to include me today? And then they're getting mixed signals from the parent. And so they're kind of always frantically trying to do the thing that is going to help their, their parent be consistent with them. And when we have parents who are using kids as weapons against each other, sometimes a gaslighting parent will use this dynamic you know, with the child which is so hurtful, so destructive, undermines us their sense of trust and belonging, you know, undermines those attachment bonds. And, you know, that child is in that cycle 
So they'll be feel ignored, feel rejected. They might even be like, well, I guess I just don't have a relationship with my parent anymore. I don't need them. And then they'll get a text or an email or a gift. And suddenly they're back on the merry-go-round. Just enough to keep you coming back. Mm-hmm. And you'll see it and it creeps into adulthood. You know, you're not immune to it because you have an adult brain. So those needs, when they're not fulfilled, they never go away. Yeah. Well, this is definitely relatable to the work I do. One of the statements in your book that I found to be so profound is, remember, you can't fix an abuser. And we've had a guest here on our on our podcast named B. Cote, who works with abusers. And her hashtag in every post she ever writes is only abusers can stop abuse. And so I, you know, I relate to what you stated there. And I, I, I often hear co-parents and children express that they feel that the best way to deal with an emotional abuser is to somehow create an environment that discourages them from abusing. Like if I just do things right, then they won't do this. If I'm just good enough, I'm a good enough daughter. I'm a good enough co-parent who's super reasonable and never acts emotional, then this will stop. And I'd like you to tell us like why that doesn't work. Yeah, that idea comes from actually internalizing the abuse. You have come to believe that you are the problem and you're not the problem. The thing is that somebody only changes when they're willing to vulnerably look inside and admit where the weakness is and from there decide to change. Well, that like, it sounds like going back to that idea of taking responsibility. It is. Yeah. But combine vulnerability, responsibility, humility. Okay. They're the keys. And you can't bring that to somebody else. If they're entrenched in a pattern of accusing me and blaming you, they're doing the exact opposite. They're showing a refusal to change, really. And so if you internalize that by saying, well, if I was a better parent, if I was a better girlfriend or wife, if I change, then you've simply accepted the abuse that they've, they've put on you, the gaslighting they've put on you. Well, one of the, the primary ways that I support kids who have gaslighting parents is having them obviously recognize it. And then having them understand like, this is not some personal thing. It's not because you're not straight or because you're not an all A student that your your parent is interacting with you this way. And so there are times when kids can sort of separate out how their parent interacts with them, with who they are as a person and recognize like, okay, this is their thing. This is their unhealthy dynamic that I don't need to be part of. I don't need to take personally. And they can kind of, you know, I, I'd like have little images where we talk about, you know, putting up that shield or, you know, doing the thing where you're batting it away. So you're not absorbing it into your skin and your identity. And because a lot of these kids, you know, they don't have the choice of whether or not they can have contact with their parent. Like they have, you know, that parent has custody time. You're probably going to see them, but that doesn't mean you can't have some really effective tools to combat that type of language and interaction, which will help you. So it's, once again, I go back to your book because you really do talk about, you know, how to, how to recover, you know, how to set the stage. I know we didn't talk about this in the pre-interview, but one of the things that spoke to me was you have a section about grief. Mm. And, you know, I'd love for you to kind of tell our audience, like, what is the role of grief in the recovery process? Yeah. When you are in a relationship or have been in a relationship with a gaslighter, in order to move from it, you can't simply jump ahead. You have to recognize what has this cost you? What have you lost? For example, as a teenager growing up with a, a gaslighting parent, you have lost 
the alternative, right? You haven't had that. Or if you spent years in relationship with a partner who's been abusive, you've lost perhaps those years that you might have devoted to somebody else. You've maybe lost self-respect or perhaps you've given things up in order to be with them. Whatever it is, it's important to stop and count that cost so that you can grieve it and release it. We can't skip over that phase. I think I tried to do that a lot with my, my mom was a huge gaslighter and I've talked about it on this podcast before that she really struggled with mental illness. And even though I have a lot of compassion for her, I absolutely recognize what an impact it had. And honestly, what the impact it had on me choosing the work that I do. But I think as a kid, I wished, or, you know, as a kid moving into adulthood, I wish somebody had just told me that step because it makes sense. I would have understood it, but I don't think I would have given myself permission at that age to just really be bummed out and disappointed that I had had that experience and kind of just be in that space where you can really acknowledge like, this was terrible. It hurt me and things can change now. But to be able to take that minute and take that breath, I think that a lot of people need to hear that message. Right. And coupled with that is recognizing that it's not about you. It's directed at you, but that doesn't make it about you. You weren't neglected or emotionally abused, gaslit because you're a bad person, but because they had issues. Like you said, your mom had mental illness issues and you have compassion for that, but it wasn't your fault that she treated you the way you did. And that's true of every listener. Another component that you really spoke eloquently about in your book was the importance of establishing healthy boundaries when it comes to combating gaslighting. So I love boundaries. I love talking about them. I love talking to myself about them to make sure I'm a healthy boundary setter. And there was an example, like throughout the book, you have some examples, like little scenarios that I found to be very relatable. So I'm going to read one aloud. And it's this particular scenario. You can be, you can find it on page 105. Mario and Rose had been arguing a lot. The minute Mario got home, Rosa started into him with accusations and verbal attacks. Mario clenched and unclenched his fists, then took a deep breath and asserted, Rosa, I'm not willing to argue in front of the kids. We can talk about this later. As Rosa continued to call him names, Mario glanced at their kids' wide-eyed faces and steeled his resolve. Later, Rosa, I'm going to take a shower now. He kissed his son on the forehead, ruffled his daughter's hair, went into the bathroom, and locked the door. So I thought that was a fantastic example of a parent not getting into a toxic communication cycle with a co-parent who wanted to kind of go to an ugly place. He set a boundary. We're not talking about this right now, which boundary setting can really take a lot of like self-restraint, you know, to not say the thing, to not jump on the merry-go-round, to not be defensive. And so I thought this was a really uh, relatable. I think we've all been in a circumstance where we're like, I could say something, but I'm going to step away. And that's the boundary I'm going to set. Yeah. You can see how Rosa was not regulated. She, she was attacking and he could not control that, but he was able to figure out, Mari was able to figure out where do I have control and operate within that. So he could step away. He could set a verbal boundary. He reinforced it with action, which are the two parts of boundary settings, the words and the action. And through that, he was able to disengage. Mm-hmm. So helpful, such a helpful strategy. A lot of times with the kids I work with, we do sort of like a role play. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, okay, I'm going to be, you know, your mom and you're going to be you. Mm-hmm. And so we might talk before we start the role play of like, how do you think this would go if you told her that you 
whatever, want to do this thing, or you want a rule to change, or you want your parent to stop talking ill of your other parent in front of you, like whatever, whatever it is we kind of talk about. And they might say, well, I think she would be really mad. Mm -hmm. Do you think she would yell? I think she would. And I'll say, okay, that's the version I'll be. And then we talk, and then we flip roles and I pretend to be the kid and come up with some language that they could use that hopefully is, you know, reasonably kid-friendly and relatable to them, but mm-hmm. how to set that boundary. And so I've had kids like be like, wait a second, let me write this down. <laughs> Cause it's helpful to have like, you know, a go-to phrase or something that they can use with a parent that's not going to get them in trouble. It's not going to be viewed as disrespectful or defiant, but can set a boundary. And they can rehearse that, which is a great way to prepare for a difficult conversation is to kind of think it through, practice it a few times, maybe in front of the mirror, and then uh, throw your shoulders back and give it a try. Yeah. I think I've said this before on this podcast, but my assistant is really good about encouraging me to never over-explain. Like if I need to reschedule something or I need to say no to you know, something that somebody's asking me, whether it's a client or somebody wants me to do a presentation that doesn't fit into my schedule. Like she's really good at being like, this is all you need to say. And I'm like, you're right. Like I need to take my own advice, but she's so good at just kind of having it clearly stated. And then it's truthful, it's authentic, and it is setting a boundary and I don't need to be in a defensive place. A boundary is not an apology. Mm -hmm. That's really important. So in the context of looking at like children with their parent and even sometimes co-parents, they can't always just choose to disengage in this relationship. They can't just be like, well, we're not friends anymore, or we're not going to have or have contact. Like sometimes custody agreements and all of that do not allow that. Mm -hmm. However, there are some times when somebody can make a choice to end a relationship with a gaslighter. How do you know? How do you know if it's time to do that? That is a huge but really personal question because relationships are so nuanced. I will say to all of your listeners that you deserve safety, you deserve respect, you deserve to be with people who support rather than harm your emotional health. Um, if you have that ability to to end a relationship, your children, if you're a parent, deserve safety and respect and freedom from the psychological harm of a volatile environment. And they deserve to grow up with you modeling self-respecting boundaries as templates for their own future relationships. So those are all things to consider. But again, every relationship is so dynamic and so individual. It's hard to really say for somebody else, when is that time? But there's, there are lines. There are lines that, that when they're crossed, there just really isn't going back. And there's physical abuse. Uh, some, sometimes a parent will say, well, they're not hitting the kid. The kid is being abused if you're being hit. They are receiving psychological harm from that environment. And you're not protecting them in the way that you want to be, the way that you think you are, by being the one to take the blows for them. Well, we know that in a lot of those circumstances, when a child witnesses domestic violence, you know, they are more at risk for experiencing it firsthand as they get older. We know that it has a significant impact on their brain development. I think there's a lot of people who would acknowledge that 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 physical unsafety Mm -hmm. would be a clear boundary. It's when it's more subtle that can be really confusing. And so I see kids more and more, the ones I work with are better at setting boundaries, not just because they've worked in counseling with me, but I think that's more of a generally accepted topic just in our world. Like that's a term that most of us have heard, even if we're not quite exactly sure how to use it. 
you know, if I ask a 12 year old, Hey, have you ever heard of the word boundaries? Like they can kind of tell you a, a pretty decent description of it, or they can give an example of something that they've done or somebody they know has done to set a boundary. But it can be really difficult to acknowledge when that is appropriate for someone who is subtly undermining your own belief in yourself and your sanity. Right. You mentioned the word safety and, and that really is key. And I talk about this also in my next book, the, the trauma recovery workbook for teens, but safety is really at the heart of trauma or the lack thereof, the lack of feeling safe. And you don't have to have ever had a hand lay on you to not feel safe. It can be from the tension in your house. It can be from hearing the screaming or, or the sounds of fighting in the next room without ever seeing it. It can be from a threat of somebody pulling their fist back really suddenly, but never, never hitting or never, you know, throwing something at the wall and never, it never hits you. It's that sense of not being safe that really creates the trauma. And of course, if those things happen, that will contribute as well. But when you're constantly in an environment where you don't feel safe, that does, like you said, change the brain structure. It does cause deeply entrenched patterns that will have mental health consequences. And that's something we have to be so aware of, especially in these formative developmental years where the brain is rapidly growing, rapidly changing. I see a lot between peers, you know, and I'm thinking middle school, high school, where one of the ways that they emotionally abuse a friend or a partner is by saying, you know, if you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. And that is a hugely, like, it's obviously a huge red flag for me when I hear that mm -hmm. somebody's interacting with one of my clients in that way, especially a person who is a people pleaser or, you know, is a more sensitive soul where they're going to feel very responsible for that person's safety and well being. Right. And, you know, they're being really controlled by that type of language. And I see it at younger and younger ages now. Mm -hmm. And so having kids be able to separate and put a boundary on like what, you know, you can let an adult know, like, absolutely, but this doesn't have to be something that you feel like you have to be a hero in this person's story when, you know, you're, they've created an environment where you're with them, friends with them or dating them because of fear. It's not a fair burden to lay on another person at all. And it's definitely not a secret to keep yourself without without sharing that with a trusted adult who can help you navigate that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I tell kids too, when I see gaslighting behavior and I'm like, I know it's tempting just to kind of keep your head down, not report this, but there are some kids who have learned to communicate in this way and they don't know there's another way. And so if you report it and this kid can get some help, you know, they can work with a counselor, they can get support for their family life like they might have an opportunity to develop a healthier way of interacting. So it's not just an only, like there's not just a downside, like, oh, they, maybe they're going to get in trouble because they try to manipulate me or cause me some sort of emotional harm. But I look, I try to frame it as like, you could be helping this person. You could be helping them learn, you know, there could be an alert put out for this child, for this other kid that, you know, you're interacting with that could change their dynamic. And so sometimes they find that comforting when when they can think about, well, maybe, maybe somebody else will have the ability to get access to, to mental health care. Absolutely. It could have profound positive impacts on your friend's life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about, you know, the cycle 
of gaslighting. Obviously, we defined it. We talked about some familiar terms or phrases that you might hear if you're experiencing gaslighting, you know, towards yourself or you're using those words towards someone else. We talked about grief. We talked about healthy boundaries, kind of the impact that gaslighting can have on people. Is there anything that I didn't think to ask you or you want to make sure that we add into this discussion for our audience? I think the most important takeaway I'd like to give to both parents and teenagers who are listening is to know that you don't deserve to be in relationships where you're being emotionally harmed, that you are worthy of love, a love that puts you first, that centers you, where you don't have to chase after a sense of worthiness because you already are worthy. For, for any, and I want to put another throw out there for any listeners who maybe are parents who have children who have spent time with a gaslighting abusive co-parents, or maybe who are forced to continue visitation with such a parent. I'd encourage you to, to pre-order a copy of my next book, The Trauma Recovery Workbook for Teens. And um, hopefully that will provide some help as well and some support as you also get the support that you need for yourself as a parent. Absolutely. It's definitely got to be a team approach, you know, thinking about it from the parent's perspective as well as the kid. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's intervention is much, much stronger if everyone in the family is working on developing healthier communication patterns together. So I think it's important for our readers out there to recognize that there are resources available. And this is this is one of them. It's called Gaslighting, a Step-by-Step Recovery Guide to Heal from Emotional Abuse and Build Healthy Relationships. Also, you have your, your next upcoming workbook called the Trauma Recovery Workbook for Teens. So just in today's episode, we've talked about two resources for this topic of emotional abuse and recovering from it and having the tools that you need. Dr. Vanal, I really want to thank you for your time today. I think this is an excellent resource. Sometimes I get sent books by authors who want to come onto the podcast and, you know, I don't always have the privilege of reading something that's well-written, relatable, has things like clear definitions, anecdotes, research-based techniques, and written exercises. And the written exercises I actually hadn't even mentioned till now, but there are some opportunities for the reader as they're going through to be self-reflective so that they can kind of look at this book as like an opportunity to do some self-study so that you can go forward in your recovery progress or process in a really mindful way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope that it can really be a resource and a guide toward healing for many people. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. For those of you out there who'd like to learn more about Dr. Deborah Vanal, you can visit her website and it is www.drdebravanal.com. And her name is spelled D-E-B-O-R-A-H and Vanal is spelled V-I-N-A-L-L. So check that out. To those of you listening, we appreciate you being here. Make sure you tune in every Wednesday for new episodes. We try to expose our listeners to a breadth of knowledge and expertise. And if there is a topic that is close to your heart that you'd like to know more about, drop us an email at www.drtaraegan.com and let us know what's interesting to you, what would be helpful for you. We want to make sure that our resources are high quality and research-based and relatable to the parents out there. So thank you, Dr. Vidal, for being with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. 